Hey, how would you define the good life? Maybe an early retirement in a beach house on a Caribbean island. How about a new home on the 18th fairway and unlimited golfing privileges? Maybe a country estate and a herd of horses you could ride anytime. When someone says the good life, what pops into your mind? The expression the good life is actually a philosophical term. It originated with Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. It's the life that you would live if you were all powerful. And if you had the ability to arrange any circumstance. And apparently everybody these days is dreaming of the good life. Hip-hop artist Kanye West, he has a song called The Good Life. He sings these lyrics, I go for mine, I gots to shine. And then he talks about his Ferrari and his girls and his booze and his piles of money and his champagne and his trips to Vegas. And he belts out, welcome to the good life. Hannah Montana. She sells her version of the good life to little girls. She says, this is the good life. Have anything you want. Gucci bag, Prada shoes, take my credit card. It's all for you. Can't slow, never stop. Fill those bags up to the top. Slide the plastic, flash the cash, ring it up. It's such a blast. Obviously, Hannah isn't the person who pays the credit card bills when they come due. Even the rock group Weezer sings, I got off track, but I want to get back to the good life. Everybody wants a piece of the good life. You see, here's how Peter frames this morning's text. In verse 10, he says, For he who would love life and see good days. In short, if you want the good life. Peter offers us the good life, but a little different version from what we've heard. God's idea of the good life isn't about money or amusements or happy places with happy people and happy situations. In fact, God's idea of the good life has nothing to do with your circumstances. Recently, ABC's 2020, they did a report entitled, The Happiest Place on the Planet. When you think of the ultimate destination, what comes to your mind? For me, it's a tropical paradise with soft sand and gentle breezes. Maybe like the island of Fiji. But it surprised me. In this survey, Fiji ranked 50 spots below cold Nordic Iceland in the list of happiest places. You might think the happiest place would be the wealthiest or the most powerful. Yet the United States, with all its money and muscle, ranked just 23rd on the list. The happiest place, according to this survey on earth, was Denmark of all places. Apparently, the source and the cause of happiness can be deceptive. In fact, you think back just a few years, you probably had more money. You definitely had more job security. You had more toys and more stuff. But were you any happier than you are now? Rely on the opinions of Kanye West and Hannah Montana and Weezer if you like. But what we need to do is discover what God's definition of the good life might be. And 1 Peter chapter 3 paints for us a picture of what the good life really looks like. 
In fact, Peter mentions seven components of the good life. We're going to walk through this passage and we're going to pick them out. But let me give them to you now in a list. The good life, according to Peter, consists of good company, good comebacks, good conversations, good courage, a good case, a good conscience, and good conduct. And this may surprise you, but according to Peter, you can live the good life even in rough times. The good life can still be had under tough conditions. Remember, Peter's readers were targets for hardship. Their faith in Jesus had put a bullseye on their back. These were believers acquainted with suffering and ill treatment. They weren't the kind of people you would normally consider to be candidates for the good life. But the ideal life that Peter describes is within everyone's reach. This isn't purchased with riches or obtained through privilege. This isn't necessarily a comfortable or successful life. The good life God describes is a life lived pleasing to Him. You see, don't forget the theme of 1 Peter. Life is a test. It's only a test. Your days on earth are preparation for eternity. What makes our days good days, what makes a life a good life, is the willingness to redeem every minute of it and make it count for God regardless of our situation. In fact, there are certain lessons that we learn only through hardship. Peter is writing to persecuted Christians and telling them how to live the good life. Well, he begins here in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. But notice immediately, Peter speaks not to you, but to all of you. See, he's not addressing individuals. He's talking southern here. He says, all y'all. Hey, here's the first ingredient of the good life. It's good company. God never envisioned lone rangers for Jesus. He didn't create us and then save us to live solo. He desires for us to live connected lives. In fact, some of life's highest meaning is found in relationships with other people. It can only be found in relationships. The good life is all about good company. You know, being a Christian in this Wi-Fi age that we live in, sometimes it's just too easy. I mean, you think, why even bother with church? I mean, to hear a Bible study, I can just log on to the website. To worship, I'll download a few songs from iTunes. To fellowship, I can just check out all of my Facebook friends. And I don't even have to take off my pajamas to do that. Just pop open the laptop and you can have church. Or can you? You know, I say no. Cyber church isn't real church. If your spiritual life is traveling down the high-tech, low-touch path, say goodbye to the good life. You're headed for a crash. There's a spiritual virus in your future. Reboot while you can. Hey, there are no apps to replace face-to-face, hand-to-hand, shoulder-to-shoulder, blood-to-blood, sweat-to-sweat, tears-to-tears kind of fellowship. Peter's prescription for a fulfilling life is a physical connection with other believers. You see, it's not just you. It's all of you. 
You know, when Christians gather together, it's as if we pass germs. Now, I'm sure we do. But I'm not talking about literal germs. But spiritually speaking, stuff rubs off. If you're around folks who take a risk for Jesus, who stretch their faith, who serve the Lord at every turn, it's contagious, isn't it? I mean, you feed off their example. But if you stay isolated from the community of faith, you can even forget what faith looks like. You see, we're physical beings. We, we live in a material world. And that's why we need help from each other to grasp the spiritual realities that are around us. I like to say Christians are like redwood trees. They grow best in groves. You see, a redwood's roots, rather than go down, they spread out. These are enormously tall trees, but they get their strength not by diving their roots deep, but by spreading them out to nearby trees and interlocking their roots with other redwoods. This is how Christians grow. We grow best in clumps. Not just alone. And yet church life, living in a clump of Christians, can be a challenge, can't it? Good company requires the right attitude toward one another. The good life is about people living with people, but then treating each other as Jesus treats us. Peter instructs us, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love is brother's. Be tender-hearted, be courteous. And perhaps this first instruction may just be the hardest. Be of one mind. I mean, just look at the diversity in this room this morning. You know, if I wanted to splinter us, I could do it in just a few sentences. I just mentioned football. And there'd be bulldogs over here and yellow jackets over here. I could just mention politics. They'd be the Palin supporters and the Obama supporters. I could just mention grits. They'd be the butter and the sugar. I hope there'd be a lot more butter than there would be sugar in this group. But with all of our differences, our upbringing, our ethnicities, our education, all of our different life experiences, how can we possibly come to a meeting of the minds? There's only one way. The more diverse the group, the more determined we have to be to keep our focus on Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. Oh, we'll have our little disagreements, but if we shift our emphasis off Jesus, we'll fracture into a thousand pieces. It's Jesus that keeps us strong. It's Jesus that keeps us together. Let's be of one mind. And then let's also have compassion for one another. You know, here's the irony. On the surface, we're very diverse. But underneath all that, we're amazingly similar. Oh, we articulate in different accents, but our heart speaks the same language. Did you know the soul comes in only one shade? The human color. We might come from different neighborhoods and have different backgrounds, but as human beings, we have the same basic needs. Even as Christians, we all have different gifts and different callings, but we face the same devil, and we fight the same temptations, and we serve the same Lord, and we lean on the same Spirit. You see, there's plenty of reason for us to understand each other and have compassion on one another. 
I've heard it put, compassion is your concern in my heart. It's your feet in my shoes. It's your burden on my shoulder. We need to show some compassion. You know, that's exactly what happened recently at the Madison, Ohio livestock sale. Katie Fisher, age 17, put her little lamb up for sale. She was hoping to get a good price. You see, Katie has been battling cancer. She's been in and out of the hospital for several rounds of chemo, and she was hoping to raise funds for her family. Well, before the auctioneer started the bidding, he announced Katie's condition to the buyers, hoping to sort of bump up the price of lamb chops. It worked. Her lamb sold for an inflated $11.5 per pound. But that's when something amazing happened. This buyer decided to give the lamb back to Katie. And then he suggested to the auctioneer that he sell it again. Which started a chain reaction. And before the day was done, Katie's little lamb had sold 36 times and had raised $16,000 for her family. Her mom made the statement, The first sale is the only one I remember. After that I was crying too hard. The Ohio livestock buyers showed the kind of compassion that needs to exist within the body of Christ. Guys, when we show compassion toward each other, we are truly living the good life. Well, Christians talk a lot about compassion, but what's equally important is courtesy. Peter says, love his brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. You know, a little politeness. Just a little bit of respect goes a long, long way, doesn't it? It's been said, apply a drop or two of the oil of courtesy and it'll cut down on the friction. Hey, here's some good advice. Be courteous to everybody. You never know who might end up on your jury. (laughs) Some of you would be wise to do a little thinking ahead. Hey, every person you ever meet bears the image of the eternal God. For that reason alone, He or she deserves your respect. But in addition, every person you'll ever meet was purchased by the blood of God's own son. He must really love them. So what are you doing cutting them off in traffic? Or stiffing them for the tip? Or being rude on the phone? Hey, show a little courtesy. You see, you cultivate good company by showing compassion and courtesy. But the good life also includes good comebacks. You see, as a Christian, you're going to be tested. It will rain on your parade at some point. Life will not just go according to your plan. And and you see, you'll have to react. You'll, You'll have to adjust. In fact, the rest of your life depends more on your reactions than on your actions. It's your comebacks that reveal your true character. You see, verse 9 tells us how to react. Peter says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Blessed people respond to evil with good. Now, remember who's writing this letter. The king of inappropriate reactions. Peter. Hey, Peter had learned a lot about comebacks. Peter was the disciple who took out his sword and lopped off a man's ear. 
Malchus was the poor fellow who came to arrest Jesus. And when Malchus pulled out the cuffs, Peter whipped out the sword. He tried to split Malchus's head open like a watermelon. But old Malk, he swerved. And Peter ended up clipping off his ear. Jesus had to pick up that ear and reattach it to Malchus's head. The Lord cleaned up Peter's mess. And it wasn't the last time that Jesus has had to heal a wound inflicted by one of his servants. He has to do it all too often today. We also retaliate wrongly. Our tendency is to fight violence with violence, to fight insult with insult. You see, by the time Peter wrote this letter, he had had time to change his tune. I'm sure Jesus' mercy toward Malchus caused Peter to start to rethink. And then at the cross, it all came together. Peter witnessed the power of love. He saw how Jesus returned cruelty with compassion. He took all of the hate and the venom and the barbarism that Rome could muster, and he responded to it with love and with forgiveness. Peter had always wanted to follow Jesus. That was really all he'd ever wanted to do. But now he's learned that the path Jesus takes goes through the cross. He reacts to evil and insult with blessing. And Jesus asks us, to do the same. When someone does evil against you, let me encourage you, you need to retaliate. I would never suggest that you just roll over and play dead or that you take it lying down. You need to have a comeback. When your enemy attacks, you can't ignore it. You can't be a coward. Fight back. Just do it with love. Retaliate with righteousness. Fight evil with good. You see, it's true, to injure an enemy puts you below him. Take revenge on an enemy makes you even. But when you forgive your enemy, you rise above him. During the tumultuous days of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often commented, the only way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. You're living the good life when you turn your enemies into friends. Peter tells us here in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Here's another quality of the good life. Good conversations. Think about this. Nothing makes life more burdensome than a wagging, cutting, biting tongue. If you're always spewing pessimism and criticism and lies and false truths and gossip and even profanities, hey, it's going to be a drag on your life. Understand this. Your words are like road work. You are paving the path in front of you by what comes out of your mouth. If you speak encouragement and kindness and blessing, what are you doing? You're uprooting obstacles. And you're removing stumbling stones. You're smoothing out the relationships in front of you. People are going to want to work with you. Whereas if you're spitting out sarcasm and negativity and criticalness, if that's spilling from your lips, man, you're creating for yourself a rocky road from the start. Who's going to want to work with you? You see, you set the stage for the good life by what comes out of your mouth. You know, it might be entertaining to some folks to hear Simon Cowell mock and make fun 
of all of those wannabe singers that auditioned for American Idol. Why is it that we like bluntness and bite and ruthless disregard for everyone else's feelings? I know I can't sing, but if, still, if I was trying out for American Idol and Simon was judging me, I'd appreciate a little kindness, at least. Why do you have to tell me the truth? I mean, just loading up and spitting out whatever comes to your mind, that's callous. And that's destructive. You know that old saying, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you? That's not true. That's a lie. In fact, words can do a lot more damage than sticks and stones. Marriages break apart. Kids get wounded. Churches split. Scars result because of misspoken words. Here's the truth. If you don't get control of your tongue, you're going to miss out on a lot of the good life. Have conversations that build people up that don't tear people down. Verse 11 also tells us, let him, who turn, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Notice this, the good life also comes to people who seek peace. You see, this needs to be the aim of our conversations. Why be combative? Do you know those people that are always argumentative? I mean, for some people, the goal of every conversation is to prove their point. But man, your point might not ought to be proved. Has that ever dawned on you? Conversations can prove other things as well. They can communicate love and encouragement. They can foster understanding. They can find common ground. They don't always have to prove your point. Are the words that fly from your mouth heat-seeking missiles or peace-keeping missiles? The person who prides himself in never losing an argument may never lose an argument. But I promise you along the way he's going to lose some friends and some respect and some influence. The fellow who can't stand to lose usually ends up sad and lonely. If you want to live the good life, <laughs> you need to learn that not every battle needs to be fought. That not every hill is worth dying on. Here's my all-time favorite quote. I live by it every day. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? <laughs> hey, the good life involves good conversations with people and with God. Read verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As Christians, we seek peace. But there comes a time when we have to deal with confrontation. And the first line of attack is always prayer. Hey, God is on the side of the righteous. That means that in the game of life, you need to make sure that you're on God's side. You don't want to come to the line of scrimmage and be looking at God across the ball. Here's a wonderful truth. The Almighty God monitors the cries of the righteous. Do you know what this means? He hears you when you pray. His eyes and his ears are attentive to our prayerful conversations. Several years ago, New Yorker magazine, they did a mean thing. They published Bill Gates' personal email address in their magazine. 
And overnight, the Microsoft boss was bombarded. He was just swamped with messages. Afterwards, of course, Gates armed his computer with some filtering software that now reads his email. It sends through the important stuff, and it dumps out all the junk mail. Apparently, Bill Gates can only handle so many messages at a time, but not so with God. Did you know God is never swamped with mail or calls? He personally answers all his requests. God personally corresponds to every petition that he receives from believing lips. You see, the good life belongs to folks who keep an ongoing conversation with God. And I love the rhetorical question Peter asks in verse 13. He says, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? I'm sure some of Peter's persecuted readers could have answered him with a list of names. But here's Peter's rationale. If God monitors the righteous and he opposes evildoers, is there really anyone we need to fear? I mean, Peter wants his readers to be brave-hearted. He knows that they'll be denied the good life if they lack good courage. See, today, high-tech security is big business. People today invest thousands of dollars in their personal safety, and yet the only surefire protection is to follow what's good. Hey, just do the right thing, and you'll avoid an awful lot of trouble. Peter says, who will harm you if you follow what is good? Some will try. A few might even succeed. But here's the good thing. If you follow what's good, God will not allow anything to get to you, but that it doesn't first come through him. And when it comes through God and gets to you, there's a purpose attached, which makes it better. Beware. The good life doesn't just include God's protection, but it also can include the world's persecution. As I said earlier, the good life is independent of circumstances, good or bad. That's why Peter adds, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and there's that possibility, still you are blessed. Three decades had passed now since that spring morning in Galilee when Peter heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But his words were still ringing in Peter's ears. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At first, those words didn't make sense to Peter. Back then, he lacked the perspective that he had now. He was on the wrong side of the cross. He'd yet to see Jesus suffer. But in the years since, Peter learned the hard way that if suffering was part of God's will for his only son, how could Jesus' followers escape a similar plight? Everybody who follows Jesus is destined for some kind of persecution. If you're a senior, if you're going off to college this year, you can expect some persecution. For some people in the world today, it's a severe scourging. For others, it's a subtle snicker. For some, it's a cross. For others, it's a crossword. It could be a physical drubbing or a social snubbing. They could sock you or they could just mock you. And yet, Peter's own experience taught him, happy is the man who is so closely associated with Jesus that he's allowed to suffer for his Lord's sake. That's an honor. 
In fact, the highest form of fellowship with the Savior is to share in his sufferings. Hey, make no mistake about it. Without good courage, you won't live the good life. Peter adds, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Hey, if your home is with Jesus, if your treasure is laid up in heaven, if your citizenship is in the kingdom of God, if, as Paul said, your life is hid with Christ in God, then what can anyone on this earth do to really, truly harm you? Once I received a fax from a friend of mine. In big, bold letters it read, Your stock in heaven is rising. Invest everything. What a great stock tip. The good life is a life that's lived with heaven and with eternity in view. And the good life involves being prepared to present a good case. Notice in verse 15, Peter tells us, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, part of living the good life is being certain that you know what you believe and why you believe it. Let me ask you, if you were stopped today and asked, why are you so hopeful about going to heaven? Could you give that person a compelling and accurate answer? Could you articulate the basic tenets of the Christian faith? And why is this so crucial to the good life? Well, I'll tell you why. Just wait until you're asked one day and you can't give the answer. There is no worse, no more sinking, no more terrible feeling in the world than to be in that place. Years ago, my brother and some friends of his decided to go downtown to the old Omni Arena to do some street witnessing and to share their faith. That night, Ken approached a guy who was wearing a turban and had this long flowing robe. It was obvious that he was involved in some kind of cult. Ken started to tell him about Jesus. And yet this cultist was prepared, probably more prepared than my brother. The guy started quoting scripture to Ken. Oh, he twisted it and he sort of wrenched it out of context. But he painted my brother into a corner. And that's when the man, he reached into his robe and he pulled out a pocket New Testament. And he just sort of flashed it right there in Ken's face. And he asked him, he said, how did David kill Goliath? And then he answered his own question. He said, with his own sword. And then he said, and that's how I've just dealt with you. I've killed you with your own sword. Oh my. Those words haunted my brother. And shortly thereafter, he went to seminary to make sure that he never again got caught without an answer. It's a terrible feeling. Hey, let me say to you, I don't want you either to get caught without an answer. And this is where some of you need some catch-up. This is where some of you need some remedial work. It's in order. For your parents never took you to church. You were an adult before you ever opened the Bible. You don't know all those Bible stories. Until just recently, you were out drinking beer and getting high. You weren't really thinking about God. And since coming to Jesus, everything has now changed, but there's some stuff gaps still in your Bible knowledge. You know Jesus changed your life, but you're not sure why or how. Here's the good news. You don't have to go to seminary to get caught up. You can go to sandyadams.org and you will find there a whole library of messages available at the click of a mouse. 
The essentials of the Christian faith would be a good place to start. I'm just saying, along with the Bible and the Holy Spirit, there are all kinds of great resources these days that will help you start building a good case for your faith. But the good life also includes two more necessities. He mentions them in verse 16. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Notice this, the good life requires a good conscience and good conduct. A good conscience toward God and a good reputation in the eyes of the world. You see, here's why this is so important. I don't care if you live in that beach house that I put on the screen. I don't care if you live in that country manor. I don't care how lush the digs are. You're not going to enjoy it if you go to sleep every night with a guilty conscience. You're not. You're not going to have the good life. You know, it's been said, a clean conscience makes for the softest pillow. And no amount of money can buy a clean conscience. It's one item in life that's not for sale, and yet it's the most valuable commodity on the planet. You can only get that clean conscience by coming to Jesus and asking for His forgiveness and receiving His grace. You know, who cares what people say about you if you know your conscience is clean and pure before God? The good life will include a good conscience. And it will also include a long track record of good conduct or a good reputation. That's a part of the good life as well. Peter encourages us to live a life that's unassailable, that can't be accused. A life that when people lie about you, nobody believes them. That's the good life. Well, how do you define the good life? Peter says it's a life lived in good company that reacts with good comebacks, that spreads good conversation, that shows good courage and makes a good case and keeps a good conscience and strings together a few decades of good conduct. But notice again, it has nothing to do with good times and good pay and good treats and good places and good games. The good life has nothing to do with good or bad circumstances. Peter says it this way in verse 17. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He's saying even if I'm innocent of any wrongdoing, yet I'm called on by God to take one for his team, well then it's still the good life. You see, according to Peter, not all suffering is created equal. You know, you can suffer shamefully or honorably. If you suffer for your own sinfulness, there's no value in that. I mean, if I get a speeding ticket driving back from the other church to here, I can't say I'm being persecuted for Jesus' sake. I'm being persecuted because I've got a lead foot. Right now I'm suffering. But not for righteousness' sake. I'm suffering for my own stupidity's sake. I got in a hurry and I got careless and I mishandled a knife. That's why I'm suffering. But here's what pleases God. And here's what witnesses to men. When you suffer for doing good, when your godliness causes other folks to become jealous of you and they accuse you falsely, when your commitment to Jesus convicts them of their sin and they want to attack you, 
That's when you know for sure that you're living the good life. Here's the point. The really good life, it isn't a day at the beach or a bed of roses. There are times when the good life includes some rough stuff. But here's what you've got to remember. Life is a test. It's only a test. In the end, what constitutes the good life is what prepares me for heaven. Even if that includes some injustice or some unpleasantness. Hey, it's whatever it takes. Welcome to the good life.